1: Hello and welcome to the Economist asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. My guest today is the novelist Ian McEwan. He's the author of 17 books, five of which have been adapted into films, including the Oscar-winning Atonement. But his stories are often less fantasy than commentary. Saturday in 2005 addressed opposition to military intervention in Iraq. Five years later, Sola followed a Nobel Prize winning physicist pursuing solutions to climate change out of cynical ambition rather than altruism and Amsterdam won the Booker Prize for the story of two friends locked in a euthanasia pact. A determination to wrestle with the moral dilemmas of the day has earned him the accolade of the national novelist. His new book sets out a challenge for the era of AI and robotics. Machines Like Me, People Like You is a love story. Well, sort of. It's set in a dystopian version of the 1980s. Britain has lost the Falklands' war. A socialist leader of the opposition challenges an unpopular woman prime minister clinging to power in the face of crisis. Margaret Thatcher, that is. In this almost familiar setting, Charlie buys a synthetic human. Adam is smarter, stronger, and yes, he's even better in bed than Charlie, and a rival for the affections of Charlie's lover Miranda. So this week we're asking, as AI advances, what are humans for? Ian McEwan, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you. It's your first foray into something approaching sci-fi. What drew you to the subject of artificial intelligence? Well, I've been tracking
2: it for years. Back in the 70s, I wrote a television film that ended up in Bletchley, which was the code-breaking centre. And Alan Turing was a key figure there, a computer scientist who really laid down some of the protocols of our modern computers. And he helped crack the German naval codes in uh, 1941. I went to interview a professor of robotics uh, in Edinburgh, Uh, Donald Michie, who was himself at Bletchley, like all our fathers seem to have been in the intellectual world. And uh, I've tracked it through the years, Uh, its endless falling disappointments. Uh, And just recently, there's been this silver age has been upon us, and AI is now beginning to intrude on our lives in quite a big way. So I thought it was time to put my long-term preoccupations to, to a novel.
1: And questions about the potential and the limits of artificial intelligence have been around, in in theory, for for a long time, you say at the outset of the novel, a cliché long before it arrived. But we're only beginning to face up to them in many of our real lives. Why did you feel the need to go back in time to tell the story which seems so relevant now?
2: Well, it was a sort of playful impulse. I wanted Turing in this. I somehow wanted to keep his real dates. I wanted him, therefore... To be alive and fully functioning at the age of 70, which is my age. Uh, That brought me to 1982 and immediately I thought back to the Falklands crisis and various other turbulent matters of the time. And I'd been long preoccupied with the ways in which the reality we have, the present, is always so dependent on such small things, how contingent and frail the present is. And we who face Brexit or not Brexit know that we could be flying down one path and not another. And yet in 10 years' time, it will seem so self-evident where we are. And of course, novelists are sort of directing those paths themselves. So there's a a kind of interplay between making choices in a novel and remembering how politics could have been so easily different. Mrs. Thatcher's task force could so easily have been sunk, so vulnerable to Exocet missiles had they been properly primed. She might have been disgraced. British social history could have been profoundly different. And certainly Argentinian history would have been different. So I wanted to play with the idea, what if science was in a different place too? Because it's, again, completely contingent. Certain great men and women come along, redirect the path of science. Social realities change, uh, give opportunities to um, research and so on. Uh, So it's a complete fantasy that we should have An artificial human who's entirely plausible in 1982. It's implausible now. I mean, we we don't even have a battery.
1: Given that it is, as you say, something, a sort of cliche before it arrived, not only a a cliche, but it has roots, has roots in mythology, the semi-demi-humans going back to to the Greeks and to, to other traditions. How did you think about breathing new life into something that can seem very familiar, both from films, from books, from television?
2: Well, my premise was that science fiction is not much help because it never gives us that sort of close-up sense of what it would be like to be dealing with an artificial intelligence, always wondering whether you're dealing with a consciousness or not or whether you're just playing a computer game. So that my my understanding of this was to get away from a world in which robots are taken for granted and actually get a sense of a kind of first contact and persuade the reader – to be in the same position as the narrator. Is this a real consciousness or is it just a very clever set of algorithms? You look at those robots on the internet, they, they all have sort of strange head movements, imitations of genuine human head movements. Uh, but he has deep learning, uh, Adam, this artificial human. And uh, he, the idea was to make him become more and more plausible the more he understood and watched about, about humans. And he has a certain number of uh, moral precepts that are sort of pre-programmed. And I wanted to just get, as I say, quite close in to what it would be like to be full of doubt at one moment, taken for granted at another, uh, wonder at the real possibilities that you had just bought yourself a consciousness and therefore, did you own it? Did you have the right to destroy it? Is it yours? I mean I think once we have a consciousness on our hands, we will far in the future have to think about granting rights, responsibilities and lose the idea that we've enslaved these people.
1: And do you see any parallel between yourself as an author, a creator of characters, someone who puts characters, sets them into the positions that they're, they're going to take in your novels, and Charlie and Miranda programming their Adam, a bit like this of modern-day Dr. Frankenstein, as they think they're in control or affect to be in control of something that perhaps they're not?
2: They decide to merge their choices, uh, Charlie and his girlfriend Miranda, but they're operating under, uh, in a delusion. Like most modern parents who think that they can shape the uh, personalities of their children, most, most research now in the cognitive world shows that actually if you have more than one child, you know, in the, and you bring them up in the same environment, same parents, how vastly and wondrously different they can be. So uh, Adam rather thinks it would bind uh, Miranda to him. He's trying to uh, persuade her to love him if they enter into this sort of parental project. But of course Adam has his own. He's come with his own uh, ideas. And in fact the centre of this novel is finally going to be a moral dilemma in which Adam is going to take a very, very different view from Charlie and Miranda.
1: Should novels include an element of escapism. There's clearly a pleasure in writing about AI and you know, mythology sets us on the path of that as readers and writers. You do want us to confront awkward questions, but you want us to enjoy it and the sort of strange wonder of it too. I get the impression that that's a, something that, that drives you in both directions.
2: You can have fun with this even as you pose it, both as something to look forward to and also something to be very wary of. I mean, just consider today uh, sitting 10,000 meters above the ground uh, inside a brain that decides that your plane is stalling when it isn't. A five-year-old child looking out the window could say it's not. We've just lost almost 400 people in two tragic accidents in the air. And that's one of our first really big, deep, worrying moments of being in an autonomous vehicle. So uh, we're starting to hand over some responsibility. To, to AI and it's happening now with autonomous vehicles and the trolley problem has now re-emerged. Who do you swerve to avoid? The car manufacturers are having to sit in on f- uh, philosophers' seminars to uh, work this out. So there's tragedy and comedy in there and yes, I think there's a lot of space for a novelist to explore the moral consequences of being around what we might suspect to be consciousnesses.
1: So your Adams and Eves record all the moments of their existence. They can do what they want with that information. And how concerned are you about how much of our information, of our lives, in some sense, we give away to companies and to governments?
2: Well, it's pressing in on us all the time uh, from the Snowden material onwards. And AI is what's now used to sift giant heaps of data. We need to be very, very cautious and careful about this. Uh, the level of so We already know that the Chinese are those pilot projects in two cities of awarding points to people and suddenly you can't buy a train ticket because you've dipped or you can't get a mortgage because you've dipped further. This is really tipping us into a kind of Orwellian or Aldous Huxley kind of world uh, and, and we really do need to be very, very careful.
1: So what do you do about that? Do you read your... Uh There's long disclaimers and box-ticking exercises at the end of your websites. Do you you practice what you preach?
2: I accept. I press. I accept because I'm so impatient with these uh, digital machines. And uh, either I run upstairs sobbing to my wife, who is the digital genius in our household, or I just um, take shortcuts.
1: You press accept and write a novel.
2: Uh, Well, that's a whole other matter. Well, I think we're on the verge of turning off our Alexa we call her echo she butts in on our conversations and um, you know i'm rather suspicious of this listening device in the in the room i use it to bring back bits of uh, old pop music that i can't quite recall and i'd never be able to find uh, otherwise and it does that very very effectively 7 million so called songs i think we might just pull the plug on her i think these learning machines have a kind of exponential growth in their understanding. And that's the thing that where we will be outstripped because we don't have those same kinds of learning capacities.
1: So would you buy an Adam or would you feel tempted in any circumstances to have at your disposal a humanoid?
2: Absolutely. Um, and I had to get, my, I, I get myself into my narrator's mind. He comes in some money, a lot of money for 1982. Uh, Would I splurge it in the same way? I'd be very, very tempted. I'm curious. And I think that curiosity is very deep in the culture and you you hinted at uh, the long history of this, the mythology of it. We think of Prometheus. Uh, Jason and the Argonauts has a robot called Talos, I think, who hurls rocks at Jason's ship. I think Genesis itself is is a sort of story of making genuine humans. And of course, Mary Shelley wrote the text uh, for the modern mind. And that's really about the dangers of this technology. I mean, Frankenstein's monster becomes a murderer. I'm writing a sort of counter story to that because remember that we know how to be good. We have all our religions, all our philosophies, all our garden fence gossip shows that we know how to be good good people, but we can't always be good people. So what happens if we start giving artificial minds all our best impulses and then find they live among us and are not cutting the kind of slack that we cut each other and ourselves? Very hard to write the algorithms for the kind of slack that Charlie and Miranda want to cut for themselves in this matter of revenge. Uh, Adam doesn't. You can't really program that. So – uh, we might have this rather more joyful problem that we have nicer people among us. Ah. Not, not a Frankenstein's uh-huh. monster, but we actually might have people who are more moral, more Well, they we're going to feel
1: even more inferior. Yes. <laughs> wretched so things are nicer than we, we are. We've
2: successively knocked ourselves off various thrones all through history. We're not at the center of the universe. Suddenly, we're not even the most intelligent thing on the planet by our own hand, will be a very interesting problem and lots of scope for novelists.
1: Okay, so would you use AI to help you write a better novel?
2: No. Well, I was an early adopter for word processing and do you remember all those um, uh, opinion columns that said this would be the end of poetry or be the end of the novel? In fact, it's much closer to the, the world of imagining and having a memory than the great clunking noise of a typewriter. But, that's but you could get AI. some of your
1: research done, couldn't you, by machine learning. And, and I just wonder whether you would save time, your efficiency would rise. And of course, that's all taken to be a rather good thing. To, well, that's to be already
2: happened. As, as for me, as for you, uh, a couple of clicks um, on a Google search saves you maybe two days going down to Bethnal Green Library, which has got a specialist collection on the Second World War, for example. But
1: that's would you trade it though? I'm going to Press you on this. I know it sounds obvious, but for instance, the time that you spent a couple of years when you were researching Saturday, yeah. you followed in your research.
2: Yeah, I couldn't do that with AI.
1: You couldn't, but you could. Well, actually, you could probably get quite a, a lot of it through simulation.
2: I couldn't stand by. Would you replace
1: food? the experience? No,
2: I couldn't stand by the food dispensing uh, machine in the corridor outside the operating theatre, witnessing the surgeon having a three-minute lunch. You know, a Twix before going back in to you know, marshal his team for yet another operation. So that uh, AI will never replace, I think, the, the warm human exchange and being there and and watching people respond in their work.
1: By extension, what about human and machine intelligence? What happens when they merge? Adam says you'll become a partner with your machines in the open-minded expansion of intelligence and of consciousness generally. Sounds like a loss of any form of individuality that we could presently name or am I looking at it too too docky?
2: This is Adam in his learning adolescence with an extravagant idea that uh, we shouldn't get too depressed about robots being cleverer than us because we'll start enhancing our own brains and already this is beginning to happen. We read only last week of electrical impulses being used to enhance short-term memory. But he thinks that actually once we're connected to the cloud it'll be the end of privacy And the end of literature as we know it, because we won't misunderstand each other. And literature runs on human conflict. Uh, It's a utopia, which only a robot could dream of. And both Charlie and Miranda know that, like all utopias, it masks a a horrible nightmare. But he soon discards that. I mean, that's part of his um, deep learning. Yeah.
1: And without giving too much away, your characters keep returning to this question of what makes us real, what makes us human, deep. Turing test tries to identify the moment when that dividing line between human and machine intelligence is blurred or crossed. So that is really a very good point to ask us the fundamental question today, which is what makes us human in the age of, of AI?
2: We will be pushed back on that question successively. Now, the, the Turing test, you know, if you can't tell the difference in responses between a, a machine and a human, you might as well treat it as a human. And we're very disposed uh, to do this. I mean, anyone whose car is broken down and has given the car a good kick is already in an emotional relationship with a machine. And we're very, very disposed. I mean, there have been very simple programs. Eliza, I don't know if you remember, Eliza was a... It just had 30 sentences. And people got into therapeutic conversations with Eliza. You say, my mother used to beat me as a child and I feel wretched. And Eliza would say, tell me more. Or, uh-huh. Or full silent. Or... And how do you feel about that?
1: Well, I'm pretty sure that's not a relationship with a human or anything like it.
2: Well, it's very much like a a relationship with a therapist. And people reported that they had some of their most profound conversations with Eliza, even though Eliza was not even AI. It was just, you know, a set of sentences. So we're quite well disposed. And all of us know, well, most of us know someone cleverer than us. Maybe Stephen Hawking didn't, but Mm -hmm. all of us know someone who's got a better memory, faster... Process and some of the rest, so we're we're quite well prepared to living among robots who might be cleverer than us.
1: At the end of the book, you thank Demis Hassabis, the AI researcher behind DeepMind, which is now owned by Google. It famously, or his company created AlphaGo, the first computer program to defeat a human master of the game Go. What most surprised you about what he told you?
2: What he really surprised me by was when he went back from Go and got back into chess. And instead of doing what Deep Blue did all those years ago, uh, of just number crunching, looking at every single move, 30,000 moves, they just gave the program the rules of chess, then told the program that it's got to win, you mustn't forget to tell it that, Uh, and then let it play against itself. It then played chess against some, some gifted chess players and made some extraordinary moves and sacrifices. And Demis, who himself was a very, very good chess player, a prodigy in his mm. youth, came to a point where he just burst out laughing. And it was that story But suddenly, you know, they really had made a chess-playing machine that discarded centuries of human chess history and convention, was making extraordinary sacrifices early in the game, and 30 moves later you see the point of it, and wonderful end games. and. It was his laughter that really struck me, or his report was his laughter at the time. He and his colleagues stood around just in wonder that something had moved beyond their grasp. Uh, Again, you could cast that in sinister terms, and I accept that too, but I also wanted to catch some of the wonder and thrill of us becoming gods, us making Adams and Eves, and imbuing them with something that we couldn't do.
1: Were there any questions that you felt that... Demi was left unanswered or that, and I mean, using him here as it sort of is in the, the novel as a, a character, but a, a kind of kind of technological demigod in this world who some people feel we, we're not challenging enough, we're not morally challenging enough to people like him.
2: I think that whatever challenges we put up to people like Demis, we will not be able to resist this project. And if we're not doing it, someone in Mexico or Beijing is, is going to be doing it. And that's why I go back to this idea that this is something we've been playing with for maybe 3,000 years, to be making this companion who will be beside us and maybe be more perfect than us, clever, and so on. So, yes, we do need to be asking those questions, but we will not be able to stop the project, even though it's scientifically useless. We can have all our AI in laptops and mainframes. We don't actually need a humanoid. At present, we don't even have a battery to run them. You know, I mean, you look at robot contests. These things stagger onto the stage with 25 kilos of lithium-ion batteries on their back, and they're hilarious. My Adam can run 17 kilometers in two hours and talk non-stop for 12 days before he needs a recharge. And you think of the brain. I mean, it's an amazing piece of uh, evolutionary wonder that a liter of 100 billion neurons, 7,000 axons for each neuron on average— running on 25 watts without overheating, liquid cooled. I mean, we're nowhere near it, but we do have our toes in this ocean and we do need to keep asking these questions, especially when moral decisions are being displaced from us to the machine.
1: Despite the difference in this novel, notably that uh, one of the main character is not entirely human, or possibly not, let's decide, you do return often to devastating consequences of particular decisions, the moment when the road forks. In previous work in Atonement, that would be the, the rape accusation that comes to mind, or in the balloon episode in your novel Enduring Love. What is it about this idea of the moment when reality can take two or more different paths that you think well, comes I, I, up so regularly? I, I sound like your
2: therapist. Yeah. And I don't really accept the single moment. I think it's, it's constant. You know, we're all we all exist because perhaps our mum did not stay in to wash her hair one night, and you know, ran into a nice chap on the bus on the way to a dance. That degree of chance and contingency is with us at every second of our lives. We don't even know which are the significant moments. Possibly, we never will, or we'll know them in retrospect. And the novelist is really someone who gets the chance to make the choices that pure chance makes. And so, inevitably, the novelist is, is involved in those branching possibilities. The Schrodinger cat moment is every millisecond of our lives. Hence, I think, the fascination, which I think I share with, with, with all my colleagues who, who dabble in this form.
1: I'm interested that you talk about it this way, as if you're observing sort of humanity, but how much of it is driven by the fact that that matters as a particular decision or particular choice or happenstance mattered particularly to you?
2: Well, famously said, um, you can choose what you like, but uh, you don't get to choose what you like to choose. I mean, we are products of genes, environment, and many other things. Uh, in my own life, I can, can't can really discern uh, moments of colossal choice. I can look back and say uh, that then determined the rest of my life. I, I feel sort of swept along. I meet charming people who uh, might then become lifelong friends. This then sweeps me to places that I never expected to go, meet other people, read books that someone presses on me. I mean one is largely a receptor in these things. You rarely get the chance to orchestrate your life and say, now I'm 21 and um, here is a forking path and which one should I run down? Except, I make one big exception, the British education system forces on you a choice at the age of 16, which I really struggled with. Should I become a scientist, as it were, or a liberal arts know-nothing and and do that? And I had, as if on my shoulder, two angels, uh, my English teacher, my physics teacher, both highly persuasive, gifted men. And I sat in the middle agonized over this choice and finally because there's a little more charisma attached to the English teacher I went that direction and chose did I choose I think I got persuaded Uh, and I often think there's this other being you know uh, a non-collapse quantum wave version of myself who's a, a mediocre physicist because my maths was never very good
1: You've called adapting for the screen an act of demolition, but you've been uh, very often adapted for the screen. Uh, When you lose two-thirds of what you started with, I think you you said, would you like to see this story in the cinema?
2: I would. I think I won't do it myself. The idea of plunging back into all this, uh, I'd rather break, New ground for myself.
1: I'm tempted to say Adam could do it.
2: It's terrible when when you're doing your own stuff and you're sitting around a table with highly intelligent people and they say, No, John wouldn't do that. I mean, he's not that kind of character. And you say, But wait a minute, that's my John. I've been following your writing
1: since the late 1980s and you were beavering away on it long before we all started reading it. Societies have changed so much in, in that time. You've gone back to that time and minded also in this novel which creates that sense of, of an arc. What have you learned in that time that you would tell young writers that maybe, maybe it is or isn't different from what you thought when you started out in the trade?
2: Well, w- the advice I would give relates to everything we've been talking about. Anyone who's a writer now, say in their 20s, they need to find, at least for an hour a day, to be offline with a notebook and chisel out for themselves that precious commodity which we're in danger of losing and which is so crucial to the life of the imagination, and that is solitude. Solitude was easy in the early 70s, right up to you know, the mid-90s, relatively easy. It's now a very, very precious commodity because the the, the little brain in your pocket buzzes and you can't resist seeing who's trying to get in touch with you. You've got to get a notebook, a pen, keep it in your pocket and take yourself away, even just 10 feet away from from other people, and investigate the process of your own mind. Get out of social media, stop tweeting, don't look at Google, carve out that little space for yourself.
1: Ian McEwen, thank you very much for joining us.
2: It's been a pleasure.
1: And what do you think? Would you buy an Adam? Are you absolutely sure about the difference between humans and not quite or more than humans? Let us know, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio, as long as you turn it off afterwards, as Ian suggests. And while you're with us, do take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.